0: Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a legal podcast from Bloomberg Law. I'm Jordan Rubin, and I'm here with Kimberly Robinson and Perry Cooper. This week is the inaugural episode of the SCOTUS sneak peek. That means we're going to be giving you a sneak peek at the upcoming arguments in the six cases that are going to be argued in the November sitting, which starts October 29th. Kimberly, can you give us an overview of what we're going to expect this coming week, schedule-wise?
1: Sure. So this is a pretty typical week at the Supreme Court. And so we're recording this episode on a Thursday, uh, um And the justices will meet in their private conference uh, tomorrow on Friday, uh, which they will consider uh, whether to take some new cases or not. We may get some orders um, out of that conference of um, cases that the court has agreed to hear. Uh, But we'll definitely get orders on Monday. Those will mostly be cases the Supreme Court decided not to hear. Uh, And then we have oral arguments. And um, soon we'll start to get opinions on these days, but uh, probably not opinions just yet.
0: And so are there any particular big cases that we're still waiting to hear on that we might hear about uh, Monday in terms of whether the court's going to take them up or not?
1: Well, sure. Either uh, Friday or Monday, um, we may hear from the court. And the court actually hasn't been taking a lot of cases. Um, It's been putting on hold a a fair number of cases more than it usually does. Um, But the court had carried over a lot of cases from last term. So they're um, they're on schedule. Um, But some of the cases that we've been watching for a while now include uh, two cases that involve a a World War II memorial in the shape of a Latin cross. Uh, The courts here told the organization that owns this that they had to take it down. Um, That seems like something the justices are eventually going to want to consider. There's also a case um, in which a federal court prohibited Missouri from ending its Medicare provider agreements um, with Planned Parenthood. Uh, so that's a petition that, um, you know, has pretty broad interest. And then finally, for our listeners, uh, there's a case that's been flying under the radar so far, uh, challenging a uh, North Dakota's mandatory BAR membership requirements. So um, all of these we could hear about this week, or the court could continue to kind of put them off.
0: Okay, so maybe we'll hear about some of those Friday or Monday, uh, but either way, on Monday morning, uh, after we hear about these orders, then we're going to have arguments in two cases: uh, Henry Shine against Archer and White Sales and Lamps Plus against Varela. Uh, Perry, can you tell us anything about what's happening in in these cases and stuff to look out for?
2: Sure. So. Uh, Monday is going to be Arbitration Day. These both uh, cases both involve the Federal Arbitration Act. And basically this court, the majority just can't stand to let an FAA case go without putting its its hands on it, especially when they're trying to fill their docket when they don't have a lot of cases involved. So they'll, they'll jump at anything FAA related. Uh, the Henry Schein case is an uh, antitrust conspiracy at its heart about uh, the dental equipment market. Oh, I'm learning sexy. some things about dental equipment. Mm. But what the issue that the court will be looking at is um, at the delegation clause in the party's arbitration agreement. So the parties had agreed uh, to delegate any question of whether the dispute could go to arbitration to the arbitrator to decide. Um, but the courts below used this wholly groundless exception to, uh, to arbitration and found that um, the question couldn't even go to the arbitrator because the case involved uh, injunctive relief, which had been excluded under the contract. Um, So the court is going to get to determine the fate of this wholly groundless exception. This is something that the lower courts have been divided over um, and is one of the ways that uh, courts are, are getting around applying arbitration clauses.
1: I can't believe that you went through that whole description without saying arbitrability
2: I was Arbit- trying to avoid the word arbitrability. arbitrability. It's a really it's terrible. Great. Yeah, the arbitrator gets to decide whether, yeah, the questions of arbitrability. It's really terrible.
1: I can yeah. see why you tried to mm-hmm. avoid it. Well, what about the
2: second one? So the second one is uh, Lamps Plus versus Varilla, which comes out of a uh, workplace data breach. Um, Varilla's fellow employee got a phishing. Uh, email and fell for it and sent all of uh, the employees' uh, social security numbers and and other information out. Mm, That's bad. So Frank Varela filed a class action against the company, um, and the company very quickly invoked the arbitration clause in their uh, employee agreement. And the lower court said, fine, we can invoke arbitration, but it's going to go to class arbitration because the arbitration agreement didn't explicitly say this is only individual arbitration. Classic arbitration doesn't count.
0: Well, thanks, Perry. So after Arbitration Day uh, on Tuesday, October 30th, we're going to have something that looks like Cougar Day. Kimberly, the first argument is called Washington State Department of Licensing against Cougar Den. Can you tell our listeners what the Washington state officials have against cougars and why we're arguing about it?
1: Well, uh, cougars aren't actually involved in this case. Aw. Never mind. I know. Cougar Den, Inc., uh, who is the respondent in this case, is actually a fueling company, and they're a tribal fueling company. So they actually um, transport fuel from off-reservation to on-reservation. Now, what's at issue here is really a federal treaty um, that was negotiated with this Washington tribe where Cougarden Den um, is affiliated with and really how that Federal agreement uh, relates to the state, and if you if this sounds familiar to you, then you are a nerd, um, and that's because the Supreme Court last term heard a similar case out of Washington um, involving fishing rights. So these uh, federal treaties are are you know a, a big deal, out, uh, particularly in the West. There's another case on Tuesday, so it's not all just about cougars,
0: right? That's right. So the the second case that day is a criminal case. Uh, Gilberto Garza's case uh, ended the way most criminal defendants' cases do these days, and that's with a guilty plea. And so after this guy pled guilty in Idaho's state court, as part of that plea, he signed a waiver of appeal. But despite that, he still asked his attorney to file a notice of appeal anyway. The attorney did not do that, reasoning that If the defendant had already signed a waiver of appeal, there'd be no reason for him to file a notice of appeal. Uh, But the defendant still wanted him to do that. Anyway, uh, now Garza says that the attorney was ineffective for failing to listen to him there. And the question before the court is whether an attorney is automatically ineffective in a case like that.
1: Hmm. And now on Wednesday, which is the last day of oral arguments, um, Perry, you've got another case. Um, now, originally, this your case was set to be argued second, but the court flipped that around. They just couldn't wait. They, they, they just know, had to excited. hear it first. Yeah. It, it could also be that Justice Kavanaugh is recused from what was the second or was the first case, so they flip flopped him so he can get out a little early. It's early release day at the Supreme Court. Um, why don't you tell us about uh, Frank versus Gauss?
2: Right. So this one involves a settlement that uh, probably a lot of us are members of. It is uh, there are 129 million class members, basically anyone who uses Google. Uh, I think that probably includes us. Wait,
1: there are like 200 million Americans who don't use Google?
2: They're at least not class members. I don't know exactly why.
1: Oh, OK. I'm That threw me off. Sorry.
2: Anyway, consumers challenged uh, the way that Google would disclose search terms to third parties, uh, and so they sued Google, and this resulted in an $8.5 million settlement. But if you think about 129 million uh, class members, they'd get about 5 cents apiece under the settlement. So the parties decided instead that the class members would get zero money from the settlement, Instead, $5.3 million will go to uh, various privacy research groups. Uh, You know, it's still in the interest of the plaintiffs of the class, the uh, class counsel says, because it will further consumer privacy rights. Um, But none goes to the class. And then the part that really uh, raises some questions among certain class action watchers is that 3.2 3.2 million of that will go to the class council. So this raises the question of what this case is really about, um, and it especially raises red flags for a group called the Class Action, excuse me, the Center for Class Action Fairness, which is run by Ted Frank, who uh, is always watching class actions, always looking to uh, root out any abuses, and uh, this is one of his his pet projects. So. The $5.3 million that's going to the nonprofits is uh, via a term called Cypre, which uh, French, uh, you know, long history and trust and estates. Who cares? But um, – and maybe it's Cypre if you speak French, but –
1: I don't.
0: Don't yeah. worry about it. We'll In never the South,
2: know. we say Cypre.
0: I like that one. Right? Let's do that.
2: So Y'all
1: can use whichever one you want.
2: <laughs> so – Usually, CyPRE is used in class action settlements where you distribute money to the class, but you have, you know, say $10,000 left in the settlement that you can't get to class members. And so maybe it makes sense to send it to a, to a third party charity or, or um, nonprofit. But the part that really upsets Frank about this case is that The entire settlement fund is going to Mm Cypre and that class members are really entitled to that money. And this is something that Chief Justice Roberts has hinted before in a a case involving Facebook that was also brought by Ted Frank, Um, but Roberts dissented to denial of cert in that case and said, "This is really something I'd like to look at. You guys should send me a case." So that was 2013. I think it's taken. Ted Frank, a few years to find the right case. But I think um, this one really tees up the issue well because the entire settlement is is goes to Cypre. So
1: this is a really interesting one, too, right? Because it's going to be argued. It's going to be one of the rare pro se arguments.
2: That's right. Uh, Ted has argued this issue in several circuit courts, um, and he's really developed the case law in this area. And so he felt like he's the one to argue it, even though he's never argued before the court. So it should be really interesting to watch him. Yeah, it should be fun.
0: So after we have this uh, CIPRE, or CIPRE, Cipre um we're going to have an argument in JAM against International Finance Corp. Kimberly, what's going on in, in that one, the last argument of the week?
1: Well, this one is about immunity, another issue like arbitration that the Supreme Court is really interested in. Here, it's immunity for international organizations. So think um, the UN or the World Bank. Here it is the International Finance Corporation, and specifically it relates to a loan that they gave to an Indian power uh, company to build a power plant. And individuals who were harmed by that power plant, like fishermen, um, and of course fisher women, um, have sued. Fishers have sued the International Finance Corporation for damages related to that harm. And the question is. Uh, can they sue? Or uh, is the international organization immune? And so it kind of sounds a little weird to talk about immunity for an organization. But actually, that's what Congress decided um, should happen. Uh, In the 1945 law, they said that international organizations get the same kind of immunity as foreign governments. Um, And so the issue today is um, that you know, immunity for foreign governments has really changed quite a bit, you know, where it used to be nearly absolute. Now there are a lot of exceptions, including some exceptions that could apply um, to this loan and the work of the International Finance Corporation. Um, So the issue is really, um, does the immunity Um, that parallels the foreign government immunity? Is it at the time that the statute was passed in 1945, or is it as foreign governments
0: can immunity now? All right, thanks Kimberly, and thanks Perry for giving us a sneak peek in this first inaugural sneak peek episode, very exciting. Um, Be sure to tune in next week for the sneak peek of the following week, starting November 5th, Um, but for all of the rest of the news on these cases that are going to be argued, you can check us out at news.bloomberglaw.com.
2: Thanks for listening.